0: deep in worship there that was awesome let's pray ah oh, lord thank you for uh, the old rugged cross oh lord what a what an amazing thing that you did for us and to think that someday you will give us a crown Lord, we can't wait till we can see you face to face and uh, just be in your glory forever and lord i I thank you for this time. I thank you for the, the worship tonight. What a blessing it is to gather together here and just sing your praises and, Lord, the opportunity we have now to open your Word and to 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 study it and learn from it. Lord, I, I pray that each one of us as we as we continue to go through uh, this amazing book of Genesis, Lord, the book of beginnings, Lord, that we would never get to a point where we're comfortable. Uh, with what we know of the stories that we we think ah, I have heard this before, Lord, I, I pray that you would just give us fresh application uh, to these these magnificent stories, these these, uh, these treasures that you have kept for us. Bless our time now in your word in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thanks guys. All right, open your Bibles with me if you would, Genesis chapter 42. Genesis 42. In our study last time, we talked about how Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams that there were going to be seven years of. Of plenty there was going to be an abundance but followed by seven years of famine And as based on the Pharaoh's dream the famine was going to be such that it was going to even overtake the abundance that that had that that, the, that they were blessed with And as we begin to continue our study beginning tonight uh, we see we are now in that famine period of time. And uh, the the abundance has all been brought in. It's been stored. If we remember last time, we talked about the fact that Joseph even quit counting it. There was so much. God had provided so much. And they they were preparing for this famine to come. Well, we are here. In chapter 42, it begins, verse 1. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold... I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers. For he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. Now I've got to think the ten brothers here real quickly. I'm going to keep Benjamin. I'm afraid something might happen to him. You know, if something happened to him, I'd be. but you guys go ahead. Anyway, we, we already know that these guys have a tendency, a propensity to be a little jealous of their spoiled younger brothers, but we're going to see how that plays out as we go along. Verse 5. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Chapter, the last few chapters we've been going cl- through, including 41, taking place in Egypt, and our focus is Joseph. Here, as we start out 42, we're back in Hebron. We're back with Joseph's father and his brothers outside of Egypt. And we see here that the famine has hit there very hard as well. Now we're about 20 years plus after Joseph was sold into slavery. Remember we talked about last time, 13 years that he spent uh, as a servant and and then in prison and all of this. And then seven years of plenty that has gone through and now we're in famine. So we're at least 20 years later... Benjamin would be at least 23 years old as we're moving forward here. His brother's obviously much older than that. One thing I want to point out as we just look at this, Jacob, the patriarch, the the one that God spoke to directly so many times, and and we've recorded that as we've gone through the study. Jacob finds out about the famine because it stops raining, because the crops stop growing, because... They can't grow anything and, and they're running out of food. That's how he finds out about the famine. God didn't speak to him directly. God didn't tell Jacob about the famine. Remember last time we talked about the fact that it was, it was kind of interesting to note that God told Pharaoh about the famine. Some godless man who didn't even know God, didn't respect the true and almighty God. He worshipped many gods, except the true and living one. But God revealed to this man the famine, didn't tell Jacob, kept him in the dark. And as we see that, we need to understand that as Christians, God is not going to reveal everything to us. He's going to reveal some things to other people. People come up and will, will give you a word of knowledge or, or give you, uh, speak into your life, or God is really speaking to me in this direction, and you're like, man, I just, I'm not hearing that. And God has his reasons. We don't always understand him. God's going to see, some people are going to be moving clearly in a certain direction you go, man, I wish God would speak to me like that. And if we're not careful, we can become upset with that. We can become angry at that. We can even become bitter with God as to why he's not sharing with us and revealing to us, even though we're praying and seeking him in certain things. We need to understand, as the Bible clearly tells us, he's the potter, we're the clay. If he wants to reveal things to us, we need to make sure that we're open and hearing and receptive to what he has to say, ready to be obedient, whatever that is. But if he's choosing not to reveal things to us, we can't get upset with that. It's okay to ask why. It is. We talked about this this last weekend. faith It's not a lack of faith to ask God why, but faith does not demand an answer. God does not owe us one. And quite possibly, more than likely, probably, the reason is, is because when, if he doesn't reveal the truth to us, it's because we can't handle the truth. We're not ready for, to to receive that. And for whatever reason, and we're going to find out as we go through, God didn't reveal to Jacob anything about this. He told Pharaoh about it. Now, Jacob, the famine's hitting it hard, hitting the area hard. They're running out of food. They've heard that there's food in Egypt. He says to the the sons that are left, what are you standing around looking at each other for? You know where the food is. Do I need to draw you a map? Why are you standing around? And we know why they're standing around, I think. I I guess I would have a reason why. They probably look at each other. Egypt. I don't want to go to Egypt. We might bump into Joseph in Egypt. We're going to have to come face to face, possibly, with what we did if we go to Egypt. It doesn't tell us that that's what they were thinking, but I got to think that, that was, that's a big reason why they don't want to go there. Gang, we need to understand that eventually, especially again as Christians, those that follow the Lord Jesus, we're going to have to come face to face with our sin. We can't run from it forever. If God wants to do something in your life, if he wants to use you in a powerful way, He has to deal with sin in our lives. He has to. One, to remove it from us, to to get the sin problem taken care of so that we don't continue down that path. But also, we need to have the guilt of that sin removed. So many of us, even after we come to Christ and we're walking with Him and we're serving Him, we still carry around guilt from our past lives, past baggage, and that in itself is sin. We need to get rid of the guilt. We need to lay it all down. And I have to imagine that these 10 brothers carried around a lot of guilt. They were were miserable because of it. We're going to find out later that it's it's still a a festering problem and it needed to be dealt with. Numbers 32.23 tells us, be sure that your sin will find you out. Now, When we hear that and we read through that, that can be a very intimidating verse. It can be a pretty scary verse if you think of it. But I want to challenge you today to think of that in a different way. As Christians, we should look at a verse like that. Be sure your sin will find you out. Your your sin is not, God's not going to let us get away with that. We should look at that as a comforting verse. What do I mean by that? Well, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to get here. (laughs) We're going to get a little sneak peek for the weekend, probably won't get this far this weekend, but Hebrews 12, verse 4, it says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you you are reproved by him, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? As a matter of fact, Proverbs 13, 24 tells us that he who withholds discipline, withholds the rod from his son, hates his son. So, what, what father is there that does not discipline his children? The one who hates his son. It goes on to say, Proverbs 13, 24, he who loves his son disciplines him diligently. Verse 8 of Hebrews 12, but if you are without discipline of which you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make paths straight for your feet, and... So that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Discipline is never enjoyable when we're going through it. But the process of it yields holiness in our life. It heals us so that we can then be used in a powerful way with God. It's a difficult prayer to pray. Lord, search me. You go through me. See if there's any wicked way in me. And then, Lord, deal with it deal with that in me. Well, we know that that these these guys, God has a big plan for these these boys. These are the patriarchs. These are the going to be the, the, the start uh, the continuation of the nation of Israel. The the tribes are going to be will descend from these sons. God's plan in all of this as it always is with us is not for restitution for sin in our lives. That's been paid. Our price has been paid. It's for reconciliation. It's for restoration. It's for repentance. Well, again, we already talked to, he mentioned, I'm afraid harm's gonna befall my 23-year-old son. You gotta gotta pray and let go. We're gonna get more on, on that in a little bit. Well, verse six, we continue. Chapter 42, Genesis. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had had about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Then they said to him, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Verse 14, Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. But this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he might get your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. 20 years. 20 years plus since he had last seen his brothers. Reunited. I got to think that, just thinking through this, Joseph's reaction. He's sitting there. He's, he's got a lot to do. The, it, it talks about the Canaan is coming now. People from Canaan, not only dealing with all of the people in Egypt that need food, now outlying areas are coming to get food. Joseph's a busy guy. And here come his brothers. Can you just imagine what's going through his mind? There had to be a lot of times that he was wondering, this famine's far-reaching. He knew that. He was probably thinking only it's, it's only a matter of time that they're going to show up. Wondering when they might. And then probably going through a myriad of different possibilities in his mind. Is If they don't show up, why not? Going through all of the possibilities. Obviously he hasn't had any news about what's going on from his family for 20 years. Is his father still alive? Knowing his brothers, if his father is dead, what could have happened to them? They start fighting amongst each other? Did they unite and continue things going? I mean, what is going on? And he understood the promises. He knew that. His dad had shared with him the promises for the the, the godly line through them and has to be going through all of these things in his mind. Just real quickly on this. Again, we've, we know that dad's not dead. We know that, that all of these things aren't going on, but the, the thoughts go possibly going through his head. And just real quick, so many families are destroyed because of greed, because of th- th- infighting between relatives when someone when someone dies. And I would just <laughs> I'd encourage you if, if if you are if you have descendants if you have a will and you have things laid out for the people you know your children and grandchildren when you're da- do all of us a favor and spend it <laughs> give it away leave your love leave a legacy not not money and things it only causes lots of <laughs> problems you'd like to think well my 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 children are all godly children Well, the disciples were godly men, but they kept on arguing all the time as to who's the greatest and who's going to have the biggest thing in Jesus' kingdom. That's just our human nature. So much time is is wasted in relationships and ministries ruined because of infighting and all of this stuff. So anyway, kind of getting off on a rabbit trail there. But what a relief it must have been for Joseph to see his family, to see his brothers come. But he still had to have the question burning, so what about dad? What about what about Benjamin, my other brother? And to get the little report that's, that's, that's coming in. Well, we see, verse 6, that the, the dreams that he had had were fulfilled. It says that they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground, which is the same verbiage, the same terminology that's used when we were describing the dreams. Remember when the, 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 the sheaves of grain bowed down? Same word used here. And it says that Joseph remembered the dreams, remembered all of this. It's interesting how they so willingly bowed to the man in charge, the one, the king of, of Egypt, the one second only to Pharaoh, the one who is in charge of all of this, they so willingly and readily bowed. But when they were supposed to bow, you know, based on the dream that they had and was shared to them that you know that bow down to your their brother, no way, no way. Pride and 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 jealousy we talked about before, but so ready to bow down to a total foreign king. And I look around at the world around us, and again, it can creep into even our lives how readily willing the world is to bow down to the idols of of money of things of of sports heroes of sports themselves just all of the different idols re, reality well fantasy television bowing down to these things to escape to get away those are the idols Instead of bowing down to the true and living God, the creator of all things, the one who not only is our God, but he calls us our friend, the world resists bowing down to him. Tells us in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, however, for this reason also God highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, to those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. The world might say there is no way no way. But again, it's not a matter of if. I heard it said one time that Ted Turner, the multi-millionaire owner of TBS and all of these other things, said, I will never bow my knee to a Jewish carpenter. Yes, you will, Ted. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. When? And if you are here tonight and you have never bowed down before the the creator of all things and surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, it's not a matter of if you will ever do that. It's a matter of when. And if you do this after, if you do this later, when the world is forced to do it, it'll be too late. You can either do it willingly Responding to the love and the free gift he's given you and salvation in his name. Or you can do it forcibly when the whole world is forced to do it. But you will do it. If you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, don't leave here tonight without talking to me. I want to give you, explain to you and talk you through that because this is we're, we're talking eternity here, folks. <laughs> My hope and my prayer is that all of us here tonight have, do call Jesus Savior. That we have trusted in him for our salvation. But there's application in this for us too. Because it doesn't say every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Savior. It says that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so often we can get get into the fact that, yeah, he's my Savior. Yes, he is. But is he your Lord? It's an interesting word when we look at it. The the Greek word is kurios. That's the Greek word for Lord. It's used far more times in the book of Acts to describe Jesus than Savior is. Not to diminish his role as Savior, but to magnify his role as Lord. Lord. And there's an interesting correlation with the word kurios in the the Greek language. If you are a kurios, if you are a lord, that means you have doulos, which are slaves. And every time that word is used, it's it's translated probably in most of your Bibles as servant or bondservant in your Bibles. That word is doulos, slave. And Again, I don't, don't want to belabor the point. we got to continue on with our study here. But is Jesus your Lord? If he is and you are his slave, understand what that means. That means you don't have any rights. You belong to him. What he says, you do. The two words that should never go together are no, Lord. Whatever it is, we sang it over and over. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. That's it. And I understand that our, our, our culture that we have has a very negative look at slavery, as it should. But it's because of what man did to that. We have an amazing Lord who protects us, who provides for us from his abundance, who watches over us. It's a joy to be his slave. He's in charge. Well, verse 18. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, after they have been in prison there for three days, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men... Let one of your brothers be confined in your prison, but as for the rest of you, go, carrying grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words may be verified, and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them, saying, "'Did I not tell you? "'Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen. "'Now comes the reckoning for his blood. "'They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, "'for there was an interpreter between them. "'He turned away from them and wept. "'But when he returned to them and spoke to them, "'he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. "'Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain "'and to restore every man's money in his sack.' And to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. Joseph is hearing everything that they're saying. He understands it completely. He's been playing along with this whole thing. Remember, he's disguised himself to them. He's using an interpreter, pretending he can't understand what they're saying. But he's hearing it all. And the, the irony of this. I mean, it's, it's amazing. They get it. They're saying, man... This is happening. Remember when Joseph was pleading with us to let him out? Pleading with us not to do this? Pleading with us and we ignored him? And here we are now pleading with this man. Trying to convince him that we're not spies. That that he should really let us go. And oh man. The irony. Again, coming face to face with their sin. God's going to do whatever he can to get our attention. And again, when we come face to face with our sin, we have two options. We can deny it, we can cover it up. And in so doing, the Bible tells us that our consciences can become seared. And when they do, then all of a sudden the sin doesn't bother us as much anymore. And then it becomes seared a little bit more and becomes calloused a little bit more before the sin is completely okay in our life. And God will allow us to go down that path if we choose. Or, when we come face to face with our sin, again, God is going to bring it right to us. We can acknowledge it. We can confess. We can repent of our sin. And there's signs of repentance that we can see in these guys. They're not blaming anyone else. They're saying, we did it. We did it. I'm not trying to find excuses. I'm not trying to cover it up anymore. I did it. And when we come before the Lord and sin has been, God reveals this to us. Repentance means God, I agree with you that this is sin. And I turn from that sin and I turn to you. The Bible tells us as Christians when we confess our sin, God is faithful to forgive us of all of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, Joseph could tell. Joseph could see that something was different in his brothers. They got it now. And it moved him. And, and it says that that he that he wept, he must be seeing that there's hope in them now. There's there's hope for them. And it's interesting because it doesn't though it doesn't tell us specifically, I have to, I, I have to think, I guess, that up until this point, up until this conversation, Joseph thought Reuben was behind the whole thing. He's the oldest brother. And if he wasn't behind it, why didn't he stop it? And again, just this is this is Brett's opinion. Take it or leave it. But up until this point, I got to think that he's thinking he's going to keep Reuben in prison and send everybody else back. But when he finds out that Reuben was actually trying to help him out, although he wimped out in the whole thing, that he takes the next oldest, Simeon, and he keeps him and sends everyone else back. Now, I don't see a whole lot of young people. I do see a couple back there. Hell, and you too, Gene. There is application in this for all of us, but specifically I wanted to target any any young people here, but all of us can learn from this because S- Reuben, we remember back, Reuben wanted to stop the whole thing. But he, but he wimped out. And he ended up going along with the crowd. He ended up going along with the rest of his brothers in the whole plot with things. Turn with me real quickly to Proverbs. Chapter 1. We are all going to face temptation, that peer pressure to go along with the crowd, to, to follow along because we want to be accepted. We want to we fit in. And especially the young people in school. But it continues on as, as we go on in life and, and at the workplace. It tells us, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are graceful, a graceful wreath for your head and ornaments about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without cause, let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as they go, those that go down into the pit, we will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with the spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. The temptation is there. The peer pressure is there to go along, to... to earn something more to get what they're promising to keep from their their rebuke upon you and you might think as as reuben did remember when back then he was trying to justify it in his mind well maybe later i could sneak back over and try to do this but i don't want to be standing alone for this i don't want to stand up for the right thing right here i'm gonna fit into the crowd and it swallowed him up It's it's telling us here in Proverbs that we are not to cast our lot with them. That means we don't walk anywhere with them. Guilt by association. Who you're hanging out with, what you're doing, who you're casting your lot with. Jesus said, you are either for me or against me. You can't walk down the middle and try to please both. There's no middle ground conscious pilot you know the story he thought at the end well i'm just going to go along because i'm afraid of the riot that could take place i'm afraid of what could come down upon me but i'm not going to take any responsibility of it he says i wash my hands of the whole thing that doesn't work gang that doesn't work you need to take a stand for righteousness You can't go along with the crowd and and figure that I can take an end around over here and and make a a stand on on my own, but as long as they don't know. We need to take a stand for Jesus. Take a stand for righteousness. Interesting little side note. When we were in Israel a few few weeks back, uh, we went to Caesarea Maritime, and if any of you were we're here when we did the little picture show. Um, it's the, the Caesarea where it's on the, the sea, right by the Mediterranean Sea. There are some beautiful pictures of, of what used to be there. Well, the big amphitheater, if you remember that. In 1961, an incredible discovery was made that once again proves the Bible to be true and archaeology to that point to be the one in error. To that point... In secular history, in all of the writings and all of the things that were found, not once was Pontius Pilate ever mentioned. So there was all of these people that say, he's a pretty major player. And he's not even in history. All the people trying, again, to debunk the Bible. Well, in 1961, and again, this is really cool, they're, they're renovating that, that big amphitheater. And the, the, one of the seats, the, they're all stone tablet seats all the way around. It's big stone slabs all the way around. They took one of the stone slabs up, up and they were going to do some jostling around and refit it. And when they flipped it over, on it is inscribed. It used to hang above a, a, an entryway, and it, says, it said Pontius Pilate. It's right there. Once again, proving the Bible to be true and all the others to be false. Anyway, little, little side note. We need to take a stand for Jesus. Can you imagine, just think for, for me for a second, what Reuben's role would be right now if he'd have took a stand for Joseph and would have gotten in trouble? What if the other nine brothers would have said, all right, you want to take a stand with Joseph? We'll sell you into slavery too. Huh. Reuben would be kicking back into Egypt too. I got to imagine that he'd have brought him right up the ranks with him. Anyway. Now he's face down in front of his brother Joseph with all the rest of them in a big, big problem. Well, we continue on, verse 26. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, "'My money has been returned, "'and behold, it is even in my sack.' And their hearts sank." And they turned, trembling trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Isn't it amazing that when things turn really bad, we blame God? What has God done to us? Yet it's so hard for us to give him praise and glory when things are good. Oh, I did that. Bad things, God did that. (laughs) 29. When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, They told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men, we are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer alive, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. The man, the lord of the land, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine for your household and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Now it came about, as they were emptying their sacks, that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they, when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. Of course, now, if they ever have to go back to Egypt, they're going to be arrested for stealing money. So now, yeah, things have gotten, things have taken a big turn here, for the worse. Their father Jacob said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and you, want, and you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, you may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. The brothers head back to their father, all loaded up, all the grain, minus one brother, Simeon, he's sitting in prison waiting for him to come back about a 250-mile, roughly, roughly journey back, two to three weeks' time. They get back after pretty much gone through their provisions that they were given, and they find out that there's money in the sack. All of them have their money as they get back, big-time problems that they're facing here. And Jacob, when he looks at the situation, when he looks at the current things that are around, he's full of despair. It, 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 you know, all of these things are against me," he says. This incredible famine that is going on. All of his money does him no good right now because he can't eat the money. They're they're starving. They have no food. His his pride and joy, his son Joseph, is is gone. Still mourning his death. Now Simeon, his second oldest, is in prison there. They'll be, like I said, if they have to go back to Egypt, they'll be thieves. They might even be hunted down as thieves. There might be a a group of men right on the way right now to come after them. And in order to make anything right in the future, it sounds like he's going to have to give up his son Benjamin to go back. He says, everything is against me. All things are against me. Hmm. Bible says something different, doesn't it? All things aren't against us. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. How was Jacob supposed to know that at this very moment, in the story, in this thing, that the famine had an end date, already predetermined, We're We're probably a couple, three years into this thing, and it's only going to last seven years. And by the time that's all done, he and his whole family are going to move to one of the plushest places in all of Egypt. How is he supposed to know that? How is he supposed to know that the son he thinks is dead is actually not only alive, but he's in charge of everything? How is he supposed to know that his son Simeon, who he thinks is rotting in prison, is actually being transformed by God, sanctified during this whole process? How is he supposed to know that? How is he supposed to know that his account is paid in full? Not only did they not steal the money, it was given back to them. How is he supposed to know that? He's not. He's not supposed to know that just like you and I aren't supposed to know all of the things that God's got going on and we get, again, stuck in our little world around us looking at all of the problems, all of the difficulties and it's so easy to say, it's all against me. But God, again, just as with Joseph, we see it here with Jacob, is a providential God. He's got his hand on everything. He's the one in charge. He's the one moving things around. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, we know it. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. He's not against you. All things aren't lining up against you. But it's so easy to get stuck there. Again, I mentioned this in the last couple of weeks, and I don't remember where I heard it the first time, but God reminds me continually when I start complaining, That he is far more concerned with my holiness, with your holiness, than he is with our happiness. We look at today and we say, God, I don't like what's happening today. Fix it. (laughs) Change it. But he's not concerned with our today. He's concerned with tomorrow. He's concerned with next week. He's concerned with eternity. He is preparing us for eternity. The sooner we understand that and grab a hold of that, the happier we're going to be. That's where joy truly comes, when we understand that. Well, Reuben, he tries to jump in and fix the problem. The oldest son, he's going to speak some words of wisdom here. All right, Dad, if anything should happen, you can go ahead and kill my two sons. That's some great, that'll fix it. Grandpa, kill your two grandkids if I don't bring your other son back. You know, there's an old proverb that says, It's better to keep your mouth shut and have everyone think you're a fool than to open it and remove all doubt. <laughs> oh, Reuben here. Removed all doubt. Anyway. Things aren't looking real good in Hebron. But again, from an eternal perspective, things are going according to plan. Chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land. So it came about, when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man solemnly warned us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel said, why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you st- that you still had another brother? But they said, the man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that we would be that we would that he would say, "Bring your brother down." Now, stop here for a second. Do you think that this is the first time that this conversation happened? When they first brought the news back that we met with we met with the king, we met with the guy in charge, and he said. That he asked us about the family. We told him that we had other brothers. We had one that was dead and one that was back home with you. And now he wants us to bring the brother. Do you think that this conversation's happened a few times? Jacob's saying, why did you tell him you had another brother? I got to think that conversation happened several times. This isn't the first time. This is. We don't know how much grain they had, but it's got to be at least several months later before they run out of grain. It says they waited till they're out. So we might even be looking at a year later. And they give them the same answer. Well, Dad, he asked the questions, we, how are we supposed to know? And I bring that up because how often do we do the same thing? Bringing back up an, an old conversation, something that we've had over and over again, thinking that this time around it's going to fix the problem. This time around, the fact that I'm going to bring up my wife's faults is going to fix the problem. This time around when, wives, you tell your husband that you forgot to take out the garbage six months ago and that's why the dog got into it and got on the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, it's going to change it this time? The definition of insanity, I've heard it's explained, is to do the same thing over and over and over and expect a different result. And that's what we see here. Again, they're faced with the fact that they're out of food. They're required to bring Benjamin there in order to get more food. And Jacob's response, why did you have to tell him? Like, that's going to fix it this time. Well, Judah said to his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go. That we may live and not die as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products from, of the land in your bags and carry them down to the man as a present. A little balm, a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds take double the money in your hand and take back take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks perhaps it was a mistake take your brother also and arise return to the man and may God almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your your other brother and Benjamin and as for me if i am bereaved of my children i am bereaved wow can you imagine if he would have just started there? Understanding as Job did in Job, Job chapter 1, verse 21, I believe. That says, the good Lord gives and he takes away. If if God chooses to do this, he's, he's perfectly within his rights to do it. But I'm gonna trust God. I'm gonna continue to praise him. Can you imagine if he would have started there? Just like, just like Judah said, we could have gone and come back twice by now. We, we, if, we, if we start there, that, yeah, the situation looks crazy. The situation looks out of hand. The situation is seeming to be leading me in a, in a difficult situation or a difficult direction. But God Almighty is in control. I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to follow Him. It's amazing. He, he, God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man. Start there. You know, we talked about this a, a little bit already here. We believe in God. We trust in God for our salvation. All of us today who are Christians, who, who call on the name of Jesus, have trusted him for our salvation, for our eternity. But we have so much of a problem trusting him in our tomorrow. We have, we have such a problem trusting him With our kids, parents, I can trust him for my salvation. He died for me. He died for them. I can trust him with their eternity, but I can't trust him with tomorrow for them. I have to control tomorrow for them. I need to step in and fix this. So often, parents, we get in the way of what God's trying to do for our kids, with our kids if we really believe that God is all-powerful, that he's almighty, that he's in control, that he's all-knowing, that he's everywhere, if we really believe that, we need to live like it. Jeremiah 29, 11. God says, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare, not calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Now, do we believe that? Do we believe that that's God's word? Do we believe that he meant it? Do we believe that he can do it? Well, if we do, that promise isn't just for us. It's for our kids. That promise is for all who call on the name of the Lord. Those are the plans that he has for all of us. Oh, my goodness. We're going to pick it up there next week. Verse 16. (laughs) I don't have time to get get done with the rest. Great God we have, amen? amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you for, for your word and again, how it is so applicable to us today. Lord, I was, I've just been so blessed today as I've just been reading through this and studying through this and hearing from you. Lord, just the specific personal applications that you've given me. And Lord, I pray that all of us can take something away from this tonight. Lord, if nothing else, that we would just trust in the fact that you love us, that you have a plan for us. And that plan is good. Lord, Lord, let us live that way. Let us trust in you, not only for our salvation, but for our tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you all. Hope to see you this this weekend. And again, if, if you have never prayed to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Please don't leave here tonight without talking to me. I'd love to talk to you some more about that. Have a great week.